Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on another cloudy day here in the capital city as once again we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. My name is Scott Challoner and I'm delighted to be joined on today's programme by Gemma Borgert. Gemma is the Managing Director of PFM Medical UK, a firm which specialises in developing, producing and selling healthcare solutions. Gemma, very warm welcome to you and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us today. Thanks for the invitation, Scott. Nice to be here. It's a real pleasure having you as well, Gemma. Now, um, the purpose of this discussion is to really establish your take on leadership as a whole. And I think it's fair to say that leadership is something that's really been put to the test at the moment, isn't it? Both at the government and the business level with COVID-19 and everybody having to really feel their way through this uncharted territory, if you will. We will get onto that, of course, later on in the discussion. But first and foremost, if we dive straight in by looking at that word leader, just in isolation for a moment, what does that word actually mean for you, Gemma, and how does it resonate? What should a leader be for you? Well, it's it's a huge topic, really. Um, And it is so critical how we all interpret what a leader means. My personal view and what I've discovered over recent years is one of the most important things is clarity. Clarity in how you communicate with your team, how you set expectations, what your vision is, um, and the authenticity of that then by by following that, delivering that. Um, And I think that that then builds trust um, and that builds a foundation for a really, really strong culture. Um, And the culture can be such a powerful tool um, within an organization if there is a culture of, of trust, honesty, um, and, and respect. Um, that I think it was the business theorist Drucker who said that culture eats strategy for breakfast, um, and which is very true. So I think that, to me, is a huge part of it. Secondly, I would say my main job is to listen. is to listen to my experts, um, and to listen to the people which are my sales consultants, which are out with the customers, to listen to our clinicians, our customers, our patients, and act then on all of that information that those people have given me. I think there are some very important points to uh, take away uh, from that, uh, Gemma, for sure. Um, you mentioned, of course, very um, early on the importance of clarity and transparency within leadership. It's very important to be able to, of course, get on an equal footing with people and take people with you. And clarity and transparency within leadership is very topical at the moment, isn't it, of course, with the emergence mm-hmm. of the COVID-19. And there's been a lot of scrutiny of the uh, UK government's approach um, and various facets of that. Um, for you, of course, working in the development manufacturing and distribution of healthcare solutions. Do you think that the UK sort of guidance leadership, if you will, has been robust and clear enough during this crisis? Mm, That's a tough one, isn't it? Um, There has been ambiguity. Um, I think it's been understandable that there has been so many unknowns. So having, having any clear guidance and clear message has not been a straightforward um, as it perhaps perhaps could have been um, from from then okay leading throughout this um, difficult time for any business and any challenge um, it's as a company what we did is then we we took our own viewpoint on how 
our employees should should cope and uh, they should change their working practices within this. Um, and also the focus that we have in terms of products and so on. Um, so the clarity thing has become even more important. Um, and additionally, strong leadership. Um, it, it creates, without the strong leadership and a clear message, it creates fear. And we've had to cope with a lot of that, I think, as a country, um, with a lot of different information out there, conflicting information, conflicting arguments, that then leads to um, an awful lot of concern, um, worries, uncertainty, and so on. And that leadership has been very important in our company, most certainly, uh, looking out for the mental health and well-being of our employees as well, and bringing all of that together. Yeah. And how would you say that the employees at uh, the business have really sort of taken to this um, in terms of their response? Because we have heard some incredible stories, haven't we, of people who have gone above and beyond during this period to sort of keep things ticking over, whether they've had to continue going on site to work under new safety procedures, yeah. whether they've been furloughed, whether they've had to adapt to remote working. Um, but there has been a need for leaders, of course, to step in on the mental health and well-being side of things. There's a renewed focus on that now, of mm. course, and just provide some mm. much needed reassurance of the future where and even there's there's so much uncertainty, so that can be quite challenging. Absolutely, we're immensely challenged. We have an incredible team, um, of so committed and so driven, um, which is such a wonderful thing. And they're so committed to their customers, the patients, and so on um, that that obviously has caused a lot of frustration. Um, and but they've all been so great at being, changing working practices. We've brought in a lot of the, trying to be agile in our approach, um, and they have been so supportive of each other as well. I've been really impressed with that. That's a, a very important point in our culture that it doesn't just come um, from the, the top down, so to speak. It's it's actually ingrained at every level. So it's been wonderful to see people who have gone above and beyond. They do very often anyway, pre-COVID, um, and they've been um, incredibly creative. Maybe I could use that word in supporting their customers. So changing, obviously, we can't be in the hospital on a daily basis. We can't be doing the clinical trainings um, and so on, but we've managed to do those kind of things. We're using programs such as Zoom and Skype and so on, telephone calls and web chats. And you know, and, and uh, they, they have handled it beautifully. I've been incredibly proud of them. Um, but one thing I know for sure is they are all really, really, uh, desperate to get back to normality and get back in the hospitals and get back training um, and bringing in um, newer technology and so on for a better patient outcome and better quality of life, which is what our company is all about. And they are incredibly engaged in that. So I'd say that they've all handled it beautifully, but I can really sense the, the, the frustration it's really positive that they've um, sort of taken to it quite well. Of course, they say, don't they, that times of adversity do tend to bring out the uh, the best in people. And with regards to them coming back, uh, Gemma, um, and the new sort of COVID secure guidelines that people are going to be working under, touching back on the clarity issue for a second, um, are you very aware going forward of what is expected of you and your staff to be able to continue operating? Uh, yes. Um, that's a million-dollar question as well, isn't it, at the moment? Um, I would say yes and no. Um, 
we have some good, very good guidelines from the you know NHS, hospital trusts, and so on. We've created our own back to work guidelines um, using specialist organisations and government advice. What's come out of that as well has been uh, it's very clear that each hospital trust, each site has their own set of rules and regulations, um, depending on the focus that they've got, the kind of mix of patients they've got, and the different clinical areas. So in terms of clarity on how we're going to be working, we are clear, I think, in terms of what we advise everybody to do. Um, but a massive part of that is is going to be down to local individual decision-making within the hospital. So that's where I say that the perhaps is less clarity because there isn't a one-size-fits-all solution. There aren't you know, rules for the whole, whole country. You know, Obviously, we've also got England... Northern Ireland, Scotland, and Wales with different mm. rules and regulations. So, and we cover obviously every single you know hospital within those areas. So, it's so important that we've got to keep really on top of the regulation and potential changes because I think that's inevitable, isn't it? We're all taking each day as it comes. I think at the moment, when more things are discovered, there's more information, um, or, or purely a change in. Um, a change in our situation as a country. So mm. I'd say we as an organization have given clear guidelines um, and we've tried to pass, we've passed that on as much as we can to our customers as well to say, <clears throat> this is what we are going to do that will protect you and protect our workers and continue so that we can continue providing our services, clinical services and of course our products. Um, but it is going to have to be still very much monitoring the situation and responding to that. And thinking of the future as we do move through the pandemic and into this new normal, Gemma, what do you envision for yourself and for PFM Medical UK and what do you really hope to achieve? I think in in the medium term, short to medium term, there's still some big question marks concerning our product mix. So since the start of the pandemic, uh, obviously there have been much higher has been much higher demand for specific products in terms of treating that and specifically vascular access devices um, and obviously the elective surgery situation which impacts two of our other businesses in terms of diagnostics and virtually construction procedures and things like that so that's all been very much on hold so in that medium term we expect um, to be a, a, you know, a huge spike in demand for our services um, and products. And I, I'm not sure when things will settle back down to normal, but we have, <clears throat> excuse me, we have very ambitious plans for, for growth. We are in a very strong way to grow. Uh, and we are working really, really closely with key people at the NHS to keep abreast of where they are going. So it, we have to follow the needs of our customers and our patients. Um, so any new technology we bring in, you know, we will absolutely work together with those uh, clinicians to ensure that they are the right solutions. So in, in that medium term, I, 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 there's many different plans. I've got many different sort of uh, structures, um, which way we might go. <clears throat> um, but in the, in the long term, um, we will ambitiously continue to grow as a specialist supplier to the NHS, supplying niche products within areas of speciality that we have and continue um, providing extremely high level of clinical support, training and education 
along with every single service that we we provide. A lot well, along with also very high level um, of delivery accuracy and service levels. We, we're going to build on this. We're going to build on this foundation that we've made in the last 10, 12 years. Um, and we will also build very strongly on the incredible culture that we have that drives a lot of what we do. Um, and I'd say is a massive driver for success as well. So, in, you know, in long term, we will continue to grow in all of those areas, continue to develop our product ranges, um, to introduce new technology, new solutions to patients, clinicians, improving quality of life. Um, and we expect to be market leader within all three of those areas. Certainly sounds like exciting times, Gemma. And, you know, I think in the, uh, the next uh, year uh, for certain, uh, once we start to sort of get more of an idea of what that new normal looks like and how things are getting on, especially with the economic recovery, we could even have yes, you back on the programme with us. Oh, I, I would absolutely love to. I think it's going to be a real test of, mm. you know, companies talk about agility. And this has been a testing time in so many businesses and so many industries that have had to change their their approach. Um, or the way they even deliver to customers or, you know, so, so it's, it's going to test our agility um, because there are the, un- the unknown. So it is exciting times. It is, it's, um, yeah, I, I mean, again, getting back to the more everyday NHS on top of that, an additional challenge with COVID and, and what's next, you know. So, so yeah, absolutely. Very exciting times. And, and I'm really very, very proud of the people I have. Um, working alongside with me that that really do deliver that incredible service um, to the NHS. That's great to hear. And this time has really forced um, the hand of business to innovate or to make you are absolutely right and be adaptable and flexible. And as I say, it would be great to just see how some of those hopes are borne out over the next year by catching up and having you back on the air with this, Gemma. It's been a real pleasure and also really insightful having you on today, in fact. And it's a shame we don't have more time. Otherwise, we could talk about it well into the afternoon, I'm sure. <laughs> I don't doubt it for a second. Thank you, Scott. It's been a real pleasure. Likewise, Gemma, and do take care and do stay safe, most importantly, with all still going on for now, because we're not quite out of the woods yet, as we well know. Absolutely. Thank you. And you too. All the best. That was Gemma Borgert speaking, Managing Director of PFM Medical UK. Coming up next on today's programme, I'll be handing over to Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with Lord David Blunkett. Lord Blunkett is an active member of the House of Lords, a former Labour MP and Secretary of State, and of course the Chairman of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Despite being blind from birth, Lord Blunkett rose to prominence to become one of the most notable politicians of his generation, holding a number of senior positions in Tony Blair's cabinet and serving as the MP for his Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years. He was elevated to the House of Lords in August 2015 when he was anointed Baron Blunkett of Brightside and Hillsborough. And I hope you enjoy listening just as much as Matthew enjoyed speaking with him. That's coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the 
government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10,000 or 25,000, all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world and being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term uh, effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and uh, production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're, we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from n knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the, the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? 
Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself, and there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's uh, severe illness, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen, seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons. Uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, a service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, uh, the food chain and the like. Uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 
uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right, and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons, because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chivying people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, uh, great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, now, it certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of 
experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated, mm -hmm. scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. But we did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real, on the back of that. It was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would, people have criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You, you, can, you can sponsor reports. This is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Sh shut um, these kind of things you, you can look at, but you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape 
that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously, we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be to prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives, for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic, concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June 
this obviously is layered in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm-hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from... The second week in May, on the side of the Hawks, in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps, you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government. And the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent a professional lawyer who, as Director of Public Prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn Mm -hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the the disaffected uh, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakira has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a a great leader of the opposition. More importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, It was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did. And the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, 
confident and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition as well as a government that we clearly want to do well because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector. People with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them. Above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Sukir is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Sukir need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One, which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, Sakir uh, Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakir needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, Mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become the electable government with the greatest majority, and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the Cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Sakir has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, 
he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn mm -hmm. from each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Plunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Chaloner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.